गुड इवनिंग गुड डे हेलो एंड वेलकम टू दोर्टींथ एपिसोड ऑफ द इंडियन इंटरेस्ट पॉडकास्ट दिस प्रोमिस टू बी अ वेरी इंटरेस्टिंग एपिसोड एज आई एम श्योर यू ऑल नो सो बिफोर वी बिगिन एज ऑलवेज लेट मी सी हू ऑल इज देयर विथ अस ऑन द लाइव चैट आई कैन सी महाराजा समुद्र दास कीर्तना निर्भय इटर्नल लाइट दुर्गा हरबी ऑन व्हील्स शुभायु पीयूष आदेश अमन प्रतीक विक्रांत महेंद्र आदित्य ड्यूड सयान किंग कॉन्ग उन एडिक्शन खिलर एजमिनोर मिगेल दियाज मैडोज वर्ल्ड प्रथम व्लादिमिर स्टालिन मोहनीश गीतू परना शर्मा तृप्ति मिस्टर आदित्य भट्ट संतोष राजू चिचिंग प्रथम अनीश हाइड एंड सीक एक्स के जी बी एजेंट रामकृष्ण श्रेयांश uh and lots of other people nigel niku new member welcome sir ma'am uh, sarthak avnish typical gamer anisha new member welcome ma'am tejaswi avnish jazz gorav debanjan priyush and lots of other people good evening good day all of you lakshmikant melvin feel feel free don't say my name kunal romeo sam astro science prakash singh ashwin ogo solution chaitanya yachuri krabi feet Superman, one thousand subscribers challenge with no videos. <laughs> Priyanshu, Master Ugwe, Nandan, and lots of other people. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. So, what are we going to discuss today? I think we know uh, what uh, the major theme of today's uh, podcast is. The title obviously tells you what it is, right? Is India loves Israel? Does Israel love India? Yes, and. Uh, we know what happened earlier this week i think it was on monday or so right uh, that uh, this incident happened that has kind of been seen as a small hiccup in india israel uh, ties so uh, let me put that on the screen uh, the news reports so that uh, we have some context of what we are discussing yes uh, so before we go into these matters before we even start this uh, let me because you know i know for sure that no matter what i do my words are going to be twisted out of context so before i begin this let me put on the record what what my feelings about israel are right so first of all let me put on the record that i have a great amount of admiration and respect for israel and the israeli people i mean what's not there what's not to admire and respect them about right first of all why do i admire israel and the israeli people first of all they have succeeded in overcoming the incredible atrocity of the holocaust yes uh, which happened during the second world war in europe at the which was done by the nazis yes they were able to overcome that at, at great great expense personal ex- expense yeah so many uh, uh, jews were were murdered it was a genocide and the israelis the jewish people they started afresh in a new place the promised land the, the ancient promised land the ancient uh, land of israel right so one must admire them for that and one admires them not just for that but f- and not just for surviving in this place but also thriving in a very bad neighborhood look at the kind of neighbors israel has they have not just survived they have thrived there there despite incredible odds despite multiple major wars and multiple major conflicts since 1947 they have always been under siege they have been surrounded by enemies and yet they have thrived there not just survived and they have exhibited strong leadership tough leadership firm leadership uh, 
one must respect them for cherishing and reviving their culture we, i mean they they have been drifting around for nearly 2000 years uh, ever since the roman uh, romans took over uh, you know israel that region yeah so they have cherished their culture they have revived their culture they have pride in their culture they revived the hebrew language it's something india is still struggling with you know what is the the indian civilization language we have been unable to revive sanskrit yeah and the israelis have been able to do that so one admires and respects them for that and obviously i admire and respect them for excelling in so many different fields in so many different domains in technology in information technology cyber security in the military domain in geo strategy in agriculture in commerce in even in tourism they have established themselves themselves as a great tourism hub it's a nation of entrepreneurs it's a nation of very high standards israelis have a great amount of chutzpah of takhlis they, they they have this attitude called takhlis and so on there is so much india can learn and should learn from israel so i have the greatest of uh, amount of admiration and respect for israel for all these things and much more yeah and of course we know that israel is one of india's most important geopolitical geostrategic relationships india and israel have a num- lot of <clears throat> things in common i mean we are collaborating and cooperating in the fields of security in cyber security in technology information technology in the military domain we are developing various weapon systems together like the barak 8 missile system uh, in geopolitics and geostrategy our our interests uh, uh, are in a significant amount of alignment yes in india and israel are collaborating in agriculture in commerce and lots of israelis come as tourists to india indians also go as tourists to israel so we have a very strong relationship a very important relationship and i am obviously very strongly in favor of favor of robust india israel ties based on mutual interests as it should be right and i would like to see the india israel relationship grow even stronger so that is how i would like to preface what i'm going to discuss now right so please understand i have the greatest amount of respect and admiration for israel now let's talk about what happened so let's put that on the screen now so uh, this is something that happened on monday this monday um uh there was this uh, film festival in goa in india in which uh, uh, this person called nadav lapid was invited he was the uh, he was the head of the international jury of this film festival the international film festival of india in goa iffi jury so nadav lapid was invited and he was made the the head the chief of the iffi international jury and in his capacity as chief he uh, made certain comments about an indian movie the kashmir files he called it uh, he said that it, this is a propaganda movie it is vulgar and the, the when you say that something is propaganda you're saying that it's lies so the the historical events the events depicted in the movie are lies right he said it was vulgar propaganda and so on and so forth he made certain very uh, crude not crude but you know unfortunate remarks and he made these remarks in the presence of uh, a uh, senior indian minister high ranking indian minister mr anurag thakur uh, the minister of information and broadcasting and also in the presence of mr naor gilon the ambassador of israel to india and sri lanka yeah so this happened on uh, on november 29 yes and in, in response uh, mr naor gilon uh, put out a a tweet thread 
you know, a response. But first of all, we have to understand that I one cannot blame the Israelis for what happened. I mean, Isra the Israeli government and the Israeli people did not decide to send Naur Gilon to India and, uh, and appoint him as the chief or the head of the jury. It was the Indian government that invited this person. And a simple Google search could tell you what kind of background and antecedents this person has. He is, well, what, what you could call in India, the term is anti-national. He is an Israeli anti-national. He, he supports the Palestinian cause and he is anti-Israel. He is very critical about Israel's policies and is critical of the Israeli government and the direction Israel is taking. So it was very clear what kind of political ideology and background he has, what we call the left liberal ideology, yes. Uh, and uh, so it was very clear, a simple cursory search online a background check could have told the government of India what kind of person this gentleman is like. Apparently it was not done or maybe it was done and still he was invited and, and not only invited but put on the jury and made the head of the jury. It is, it is extremely disappointing what's happened. And this is a major failure on the part of the Indian government. It has to be criticized most strongly. Right? It's a huge failure. It, it, this amounts to a security failure. This has impacted India-Israel relationship, the India-Israel uh, ties, right? And it's not the fault of the Israelis that this, this happened. It's the fault of the Indian government. I'm not sure who's responsible for this. So when you don't know who is responsible for something which went wrong, the buck stops at the top, right? So who is the head of the relevant ministry? It's Mr. Anurag Thakur. So one has to pl uh, place the responsibility at, at his uh, doorstep. Uh, so I'm not saying he is to blame, but it is at the end of the day his responsibility. And at the end of the day, it's the prime minister's responsibility when something goes wrong or something goes well. So I think the Indian government uh, has messed up very badly. And no matter how much criticism you give them, it's less. Because this sort of thing should never have happened. The due diligence was not done. If it was done, then it was suppressed. And this person was still made the head of the jury. And then he went ahead and did what he did. Huge failure. Very disappointing. So whoever is, I mean, I'm sure lots of people are criticizing the government, Indian government for this. And the criticism is well deserved. Now let's go to what the uh, Israeli uh, Ambassador said, so first of all, yeah, th that's what this person, Naur, Naur Gilon, Naur, Na Navid Lapid, that's what Navid Lapid, uh, Nadav Lapid said about the movie. And then he went ahead and said uh, that the film has fascist features. That's what he said later. And then he also said that I stand behind every word I said about Kashmir Files, uh, Nadav Lapid. He said this to various Indian journalists. Right? That's what happened. So now uh, the Israeli ambassador uh, put out this big rebuttal on Twitter, this Twitter thread. So let's just quickly read it out. It's not very long and let's understand what he is saying here. Open letter, letter to Nadav Lapid following his criticism of the movie. It's not in Hebrew because I wanted our Indian brothers and sisters to be able to understand. It's also relatively long. So I'll give you the bottom line first. You should be ashamed, Nadav Lapid. Here's why. In Indian culture, they say that a guest is like God. You have abused in the worst way the Indian invitation to chair the panel of judges at the festival, as well as the trust, respect and warm hospitality they have bestowed upon you. Our Indian friends brought uh, brought Leo Raz and Avi Isakharyov from Fauda official 
in order to celebrate the love in India towards Fauda, the, the TV series, the web series, and Israel. I suspect this is maybe one of the reasons they invited you as an Israeli and me as the ambassador of Israel. I understand your need in retrospect to justify your behavior, but I can't understand why you told Ynet News afterwards that the minister and I said on stage there is similarity between our countries because we fight a similar enemy and reside in a bad neighborhood. We did speak about the similarities and closeness between our countries. The minister spoke about his visits to Israel, it being a high-tech nation and the potential of combining this with the film industry. I spoke about the fact that we grew up watching Indian films. I also said we should be humble when India, with such a great film culture, is consuming Israeli content, Fauda and more. I am no film expert, but I do know that it's sensitive and presumptuous to speak about historical events before deeply studying them and which are an open wound in India because many of the involved are still around and still pay, paying a price. As a son of a Holocaust survivor, I was extremely hurt to see reactions in India to you that are doubting Schindler's list, the Holocaust in verse. I unequivocally condemn such statements. They say there is no justification. It does show the sensitivity of the Kashmir issue here. From your interview to Ynet, the connection you make between your criticism of Kashmir files and your dislike of what's happening in Israeli politics was quite evident. My suggestion, as you vocally did in the past, feel free to use the liberty to sound your criticism of what you dislike in Israel, but no need to reflect your frustration on other countries. I am not sure what that you have enough factual basis to make such comparisons. I know I don't. You will go back to Israel thinking that you are bold and made a statement. We, the representatives of Israel, would stay here. We, we sh you should see our DM boxes following your bravery and, bravery and what implications it may have on the team under my responsibility. The friendship between the people and the states of India and Israel is very strong and will survive the damage you have inflicted. As a human being, I feel ashamed and want to apologize to our hosts, India, for the bad manner in which we have repaid them for their generosity and friendship. All right. So that's what that's the that's what uh, Mr. Uh, Naor Gilon, the ambassador of Israel to India, said in on Twitter. And then there were the official uh, Twitter account of Israel itself said that to all our friends in India, please read this important thread. And there were other reactions as well. Maya Kadosh, uh, who is uh, an Israeli diplomat and former uh, DCM at Israeli in the Israeli embassy in India, said that, dear friends in India, from the bottom of my heart, I am sorry. Uh, Tamar Schwarzbad, who is uh, head of digital operations of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Israel also said that in Israelis love and respect our Indian brothers and sisters. No one can change that. Uh, Daniel Carmon, the former ambassador, said something to the same effect and so on and so forth. So that's what has happened. Now let's understand what the Israeli uh, ambassador is, say, is saying over here in this Twitter thread. I read the entire thing out. There are four or five major points that he is making. First of all, he's telling... Uh, telling this person, uh, Nadav Lapid, that you should have been a good guest. You have been invited as a guest. And when you go as a guest to somebody's house, even if you disagree with them, you don't say it openly. You are polite. You refrain from saying things that your hosts would not like. So he's, so, so Naur Gilon is telling Nadav Lapid that you should have been a good guest. Bad, you have been a bad guest. 
That's the first thing. Secondly, he said that is India is consuming a lot of Israeli TV content, movie content, like Fauda, the series, which is very popular in India, and so on and so forth. So because India is consuming so much Israeli content, you should have been more humble because now Indians may not watch all this stuff and it's going to affect us, right? It's going to affect our bottom line. It's going to affect our profit. I mean, you know, the popularity of Israel in India. It's, it's said over here. Yes. Then he refers to... Uh, unspecified the the ambassador refer, refers to unspecified historical events yeah he talks about that he co he says that it's an open wound but he refrains from uh, referring to and recognizing these events as a genocide so he doesn't say that and then he says that i am hurt as a as a son of a holocaust survivor i'm hurt that some people in india are reacting by doubting the events of the movie Schindler's List and by doubting whether whether the Holocaust happened or not. And he's unequivocally condemning such statements made by Indians. He's saying there is no justification for such statements made by Indians. And then he says that the Kashmir issue is sensitive. Yeah. So essentially, the Israeli ambassador is calling out Nadav Lapid for being a bad guest. He's saying your behavior has been bad. You have Your behavior was ungracious. He does not, the Israeli ambassador does not refute Nadav Lapid's claim that the movie was propaganda. He, the um, Israeli ambassador says that the Kashmir issue is a sensitive issue. But he does not recognize or deny India's assertion that Kashmir is an integral part of India. Right? So understand what the Israeli ambassador is saying and what he is not saying. He is calling out Nadav Lapid for his behavior, but he is not refuting Nadav Lapid's claim that the film was propaganda. He is condemning various Indian reactions on Twitter and social media that are doubting Schindler's List and the Holocaust, and so on and so forth. And he is not recognizing or denying India's assertion that Kashmir is an integral part of India, and he is not recognizing what happened in Kashmir and the event of the Kashmir Files movie as genocide. Understand this. Right? This is how diplomacy works and this is the Israeli position. You can see the Israeli position in this Twitter thread. Now, you just saw it. Here, here is something that happened the very next day. So please understand that there is something called the International Day of Solidarity with the Palestinian people. It's observed on November 29. Yeah? It is, this is a, an event, a day that is organized by the United Nations itself. It's a UN observe UN organized observance. So November 29 is the International Day of Solidarity with the Palestinian people on the occasion of that day, which happened to be the very next day after this person's uh, comments. So on the next day, the uh, Indian Embassy in Palestine put out this this tweet message of the Honorable Prime Minister of India, Sri Narendra Modi, on the occasion of the International Day of Solidarity with the Palestinian people. And there's a message, yeah, in which India says that we have India's uh, ties with the friendly people of Palestine are rooted in our com common history. We have always supported the Palestinian people in their pursuit of economic and social development with dignity and self-reliance. We are hopeful that direct talks between the Palestinian and Israeli sides will resume to find a comprehensive and negotiated solution, and so on and so forth, like I love to say. So over here, India says that uh, we support the Palestinian people in 
their pursuit of economic and social development with dignity and self-reliance. India is not saying in this statement that we support the freedom of Palestine. Right? So there is support, but there is limited support. So th that is the statement that India made the very next day, which happened to be the appropriate day for making the statement. So it's not in retaliation or response to what happened. But it's also interesting to note that this, uh, this statement, this message is dated November 2. So clearly the Prime Minister, uh, th this message was formulated a few weeks before the, uh, the event and it was signed on November 2 and then it was released on November 29. Yeah. So you can see that India does not recognize Palestine as an independent state or does not support freedom for Palestine, but we support the self, uh, what the economic and social development of the Palestinian people with the dignity and self-reliance. Yeah. So that is interesting messaging coming out the very next day. So what we can see here is that there is clear divergence in both nations' views. Yes, Israel does not recognize or deny India's assertion that Kashmir is an integral part of India, which means that Israel doesn't want to comment about the matter. I'm not sure what kind of maps the Israelis put out, world maps or Asia maps, and I wonder what kind of... Uh, boundaries it shows there i suspect it would be very similar to what kind of boundaries the americans recognize yeah when it comes to kashmir so the israelis don't recognize or deny they have not made a statement of recognizing or denying india's assertion that kashmir is an integral part of india and they are not um, uh, recognizing the fact that what happened in kashmir was a genocide the governor the, the ambassador to india did not refute nadav lapid's claim that the film was propaganda there is divergence in the views of both the nations. Both the nations know it. Both the nations recognize it. And both the nations work together despite these differences because we have much stronger shared interests. But please remember my dear friends, viewers, that the India-Israel relationship is not driven by love or friendship or brotherhood or shared values, or shared culture. There is this incredible, fantastical belief in India, among the Indian people, that the Israelis and the Jews love India. You know, there must be many Jews and Israelis who like India. No doubt about it, there must be many. And there may be a small minority of them who may possibly love India. But the truth is that most Israelis and Jews overall are at best indifferent about India or towards India. Understand that. There is this incredible delusion in India that most Israelis and most Jews love India the way Indians love Israel. This is delusion. This is a delusional belief. Right? It is not the case. Now, we have seen the example of one person, Nadav Lapid, who clearly is very strongly anti-India. He comes to India as an honored guest and then he he indulges in this sort of behavior. Well, I assure you, he is not the only person who is, who is an India hater or, or strongly anti-India. There are many such people. Like in any nation, there will be anti-nationals and people like that. So there will be many other Israelis also like this. Let me give you a different example. A historical exa example uh, of not somebody who's anti-India, but a different kind of person. So first of all, you, you all know, 
I hope you all know if you've been watching my channel about what happened to the Romani people at the same time as the Holocaust was happening in Europe. The Nazis under the direction and leadership of the very evil person Adolf Hitler murdered I don't know how many million Jews. We know that. This was a, an extermination program. It was a genocide. And this did not happen only to the Jewish people. It happened to the Romani people as well. The Romani people are of Indian origin. They're Indian origin people who live in Europe, you know, who have been persecuted horribly in Europe for a thousand years. Incredible racism and persecution against them, which still continues today. The Romani people. So the Romani people were also targeted for annihilation by the Nazis because they they represented the Romani people represented the inconvenient fact that the true Aryans are not white people with blue eyes and blonde hair. The true Aryans are brown people, like the Indians and the Iranians. Right? So the Nazis sought to exterminate the Romani people as well. This is a fact. Put, see the, on the screen, historical amnesia, the Romani Holocaust. And we don't even know how many Romani people died because nobody has bothered to look into this matter because the Romani people are brown people. They don't matter. They are gypsies, right? So a whole range of figures are thrown around from 20,000 to 200,000 to 2 million. We don't know how many people died because no historian has really bothered to investigate this properly, systematically with facts and data. But it is a fact there was a horrific holocaust of the Romani people as well, right? Uh, the, Roma, the Romani people call it the Purajmos or the Kalitras or whatever. They have their own word for what happened to them. It was horrific. There are so many stories in there, which I will not go into today. But there was a Romani Holocaust. Now, there is a section of Jewish people, not only Israelis, but Jewish people, who belong to what is called the uniqueness camp. The uniqueness camp. The uniqueness camp is a school of Jews who have the view that the Nazi genocide of the Jewish people was unique and that the killing of the gypsy people was a mere afterthought, which means that the, the Jews are special and the real thing, the, the main thing was the, uh, the unique thing was the killing of the Jews and the killing of the gypsies was merely after, an afterthought. It is not to be taken very seriously. This is called the uniqueness camp and the proponent of the uniqueness camp was a person called Eli Weisel or Weasel. I don't know what the pronunciation is. It's not important. Who is, who or who was Eli Weisel? Eli Weisel was the face of the Holocaust. He is an he was an extremely famous and prominent writer, professor, political athlete, uh, political activist, and he was awarded the Nobel Prize, the Nobel Peace Prize, right? He he authored fifty seven books and so on. He was a Romanian-American writer, professor, and so on and so forth. So this person was the uh, originator of the uniqueness camp. Which And the thing about this person, he is an extremely famous person. He wrote so many books. People uh, repeat his quotes even today. I am sure even I must have put up one or two of his quotes on my Twitter account. Very influential person, very famous person. And he tried to suppress... What happened to the gypsy people? Yeah, they, here's an article here. The Nazis' extermination of gypsies was nearly as complete proportionally as the Nazis' extermination of European Jews. 
And yet the commemoration of the gypsy victims of the Holocaust has never come even close to the memorialization of Jewish victims. And this is a well-known fact. And uh, the principal opponent of this was Eli Weasel. Weisel, right? right? Here is an... Uh, yeah, the, the gypsies were lobbying for representation on Holocaust Memorial Council in 1986 in the United States. And this council was, uh, I think, I believe at one time headed by this person, Eli Weisel, a Jewish person. This is an article by Ian Hancock, the first Romani person to ever acquire a PhD, in which he speaks about uh, the role of Eli Weisel and all this. Yeah. Uh, Weasel has steadfastly maintained an exclusivist position regarding the definition of the word Holocaust, interpreting it as referring to the fate of the Jewish victims alone, and so on. He has, uh, uh, the word has never once been used in the councils or the museum's documentation in connection with the Romani people, not even in the program for the Romani Day of Remembrance, and so on, uh, and so on. So this person tried to suppress what happened and he he has see the, the main thing is that victimhood is privilege and Eli Weisel was of the opinion that the the Jewish people are the privileged people and the Romani people uh, do not deserve any any commemoration or and any recognition of what happened to them and the consequence of that is that we still don't know how, to what extent the Romani people were were exterminated in in Europe during the Holocaust, during the genocide that was conducted, perpetrated by the evil Nazis. Yes? So this is one example. I am not saying all Jews are like this, but please open your eyes to the fact that there are all kinds of people in the world. Right? And there is this, this camp, this, this school of thought among the Jews, this uniqueness camp, that the world must only commemorate what happened to the Jews and forget about what happened to the Romanis. The killing of the gypsies, the Romanis was a mere afterthought. It is not very important. Yeah? The Jews are privileged. Others are not. I am sure there are lots of people in Israel and Jewish people who do not agree with this. But please understand that there are all kinds of there are all kinds of people in the world. Even among the Jewish people whom India loves very well and most of whom are, whom are wonderful people. Yeah? So this is something I thought I should share with you because it is important for Indians to have a 360 degree perspective of the world, not a monochromatic perspective of the world. Indians are incredibly emotional people and they see things through emotions only, right? So what I would like to say is that the India-Israel relationship is a very strong partnership. It is driven by significant convergence of interests. Each nation has a lot to offer the, uh, to the other that the other desires. There is immense potential for both nations to work together for mutual benefit because of our shared interests and not because of love or friendship or brotherhood or shared values or shared culture. It's not about love, it's about realism. Yeah, And when you see affirmations by Israeli diplomats and certain people that of, of love and brotherhood about our Indian brothers and sisters, these messages are exclusively aimed at the Indian audience. It is not aimed at the Israeli audience. Because unlike Indians, Israel, the Israeli audience is not emotional. It is not swayed by sweet talk. The Israelis are pragmatic and realistic people. Right? So all these statements that you will see in public are aimed at the Indian audience. Because the Israelis know that the Indians love this sort of sweet talk. Is Indians fall for it very easily. I'm not saying the Israelis are trying to mislead you or misguide you or anything, but they know what works and they use it. Why not? 
<laughs> and I can assure you that there will be some Israeli YouTubers who will strongly disagree with me. I'm not naming anybody. I don't even watch any of them. I'm aware of uh, two or three of them. Yeah. Um, look, they are doing work, which is good work, I'm sure. But I assure you, there will be some Israeli YouTubers who will strongly disagree with what I am saying. The reason for that is that they depend on Indian views. And they have to say this thing, that, that Israelis love India. The truth is, most Israelis are completely indifferent towards India, at best. And I see all these reactions on, on social media from Indians saying that we love Israel, India, Israel Brotherhood is forever, and I can give my life for Israel, and I don't know what else, what not this day. Please understand that the only nation you should love is your own nation. And the only flag you should have on your social media accounts is your own flag. Have some self-respect and please be realistic about the world. That's all I would like to say to Indians. Indians, <laughs> it's it's really frustrating to see this. But yeah, so that's what I wanted to talk about for, for from the for, about this particular incident. Like I have said, I have the greatest amount of admiration and respect for Israel, right? For what they have achieved, for what they stand for. There is a lot that India can and should learn from Israel. Indians as individuals, as people, India as a society, as a nation, as a, as a culture, can learn a lot from Israel. But we have to be realistic about India-Israel ties. There, it's not these ties are based on on realism, on shared interests, not on love and brotherhood and and what not Indians think it is. Right. So please, please understand this. All right. What else shall we talk about? Well, obviously, we should talk about the Russia-Ukraine conflict because it affects India. I mean, it, it's very important for India and the kind of uh, year that we are going to going to we, that we are going towards 2023. It's going to be a very interesting year, and a lot of it will be mediated by the Russia-Ukraine situation. Yes, India's economy will be affected by it. The fuel prices, the food prices, the your groceries that you purchase every day, everything. Is going to be affected by it. It's a very important thing. So we have to keep an eye on this. So what shall we talk about vis-a-vis uh, -vis the, in, uh, the uh, Russia-Ukraine conflict? So first of all, let's talk about uh, Madame Ursula von whatever her name is. Yes. Uh, yeah. So the, the head of the EU, Ursula von der Leyen, yeah, she made a huge mistake just a couple of days ago. Let's put that on the screen. She made a huge mistake, a huge admission, which was then very rapidly scrubbed from the internet. They tried to scrub it. So here's the news. EU Commission, uh, European Commission deleted the part from Ursula von der Leyen's address on the death of more than 100,000 Ukrainian servicemen. Yeah. She said that Ukraine lost them more. She said that Ukraine lost more than 100,000, more than a lakh servicemen officers, army officers, army personnel since the war started. Uh, so that's the main slip up that she made. It, it, there's a video that you can see on Twitter and online and various social media platforms where, where people have clipped that part of the thing and, and, and they put it across. So the European Commission or the EU officials tried to uh, censor that. They tried to they, I think the, the tweet was, was pulled down or, or the video was censored and edited to cut out that part of the speech, but it's there. Once it's on the internet, it's it's there. Yeah. So understand this. 
the Ukrainians, it's now official, they have lost more than 100,000 army personnel. What is the st- What was the strength of the Ukrainian army? What is it typically like? This is Wikipedia. Always treat it... Uh, one second. Let me put that back on the screen. Here we are. So this is what we looked at. Now take a look at this. The armed forces of Ukraine. This is Wikipedia. So always treat it. Uh, be, be careful when, you, when you're using Wikipedia. Always I, w- I would like to say this. So the number of active personnel typically at, in 2022 was 196,600. Less than 2 lakhs. Less than 200,000. And more than 100,000 of them are dead. More than half the strength of the Ukrainian military is is gone. Obviously, it says that they have 900,000 reserve personnel and so on and so forth. Yes, but this is the situation. That is a terrible, terrible statistic. Imagine 100,000 plus people, soldiers, getting killed in war. That's, That's a disaster for any nation. And that's what's happened. It's a huge slip up by uh, Ursula von der Leyen, a huge admission, a huge mistake, but there it is. So now that throws some actual perspective on, on what has been happening all this time in the Ukraine conflict. Now, let's talk about what else is happening. So now we, we hear the news about the Russian oil price cap that the West is trying to impose. Let's take a look at this. Yes, this is a BBC article. Ukraine war, price cap on Russian oil will hit Putin immediately, says the US. This is about an hour ago, this article. Yeah, the cap uh, approved by Western allies on Friday is aimed at stopping countries paying more than $60 per barrel of seaborne Russian crude oil. This measure will come into force on Monday, day after tomorrow. Uh, which it will intensify Western pressure on Russia over the invasion. Yes, that's what's happening. Now, what else do we hear? Uh, This is also an article which came out, I think, yesterday. India to keep purchasing Russian oil after sanctions go into effect. Yes, India uh, has said that it would continue to purchase Russian crude oil even after the embargo and price cap go into effect on on December 5. An official in the Indian oil ministry said on Friday. So India will keep on importing discounted Russian oil. It's good for Indian well prices of, of essentials and commodities, etc. in India. Yeah. Uh, so that's uh, what India has said. India, the Indian oil ministry official said that the sanctions placed on Russian oil, specifically on Western shipping and insurance services, won't apply to India because India intends to use non-Western services to transport seaborne Russian crude oil into India. We are seeing a bifurcation of the world order here. Russian price cap not to affect Indian oil imports. Once again, India says the same things. Um, So, yeah, that's what we hear. We will continue to buy oil from wherever we need to buy, including Russia. India has been assured by global oil suppliers there will be no disruption in supplies. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's what's happening. That's what India is saying. So there's a price cap, but India is not going to adhere to the price cap. What is this? Okay, this is this we'll talk about later. So what's happening? So the Americans, the West, which, which means NATO, it means America has decided to cap, impose an artificial cap on the price of Russian oil. And the highest price you should you can pay is $60 per barrel. And the 
what also you have to understand is that they will deny shipping of this russian oil to nations that do not comply with this price cap because many of the oil tankers so the majority of the oil tankers that that ferry oil worldwide they they belong to eu nations or nato or nato nations or or to their well various american what i would call vassal states yeah so they will deny shipping to nations that will not comply with the price cap and uh, they will deny insurance for instance to tankers that are delivering russian oil to nations that do not do not comply with the price cap the insurance you see the oil tankers need insurance and most insur- insurance companies are also located in eu nations and nato nations and in the uk yeah the uk obviously is a nato nation right and there are other services also that are required like brokering and protection and indemnity and flagging and what not these are all technical terms you can look it up if you're interested so most of these services are provided by western nations or nations that are allied or aligned with the west yes so if all these services are denied then this is going to affect the two major nations that are importing in large quantities of russian oil which are india and china so india has said clearly it intends to use non western services to transport russian oil to india which means that we will that india will have to have this oil transported by tankers within tankers that are owned by non western nations and the other services like brokering and and insurance and all those things will also have to be acquired have to be acquired from uh, providers that are non western in nature the thing is here you know what we have to understand here if 20 years ago india had invested in a large fleet of oil tankers then none of this would have happened right so it's because i i don't think india has any significant uh, number of oil tankers at all and that is see the, 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 this is something that can um, hit you very badly when when such a uh, situation arises so any major nation needs to be self reliant and self sufficient in these things you should have your own oil tankers you should not depend on third parties and and, and other nations you should have your own security providers for these oil tankers you should have a major navy of your, of your own that why do you think all major nations superpowers and, and major powers great powers have large militaries to safeguard their their you know uh, their supply lines supply chains and all those things so these are things that india will need to start investing in if india wants to rise and become a genuinely great power yeah So as of now this is the situation India will not comply with the US imposed price cap on Russian oil India will continue to import Russian oil at a discounted rate it's going to continue now what are going to be the 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 repercussions of that we will have to see uh the Indian uh, foreign minister Dr Jayashankar has said that in the past India has has quietly complied with the western uh the west the us stand in the western stand on pakistan yes the americans and the west have always uh, prioritized their interests over india's interests yeah and india has has quietly you know tolerated that so now it is time for the west to tolerate india putting its own national interest first in a way that doesn't hurt the west in any significant way in any way at all actually it doesn't hurt the west so anyway this is the situation right now there is this new 
oil price cap that the West has imposed and India is not going to abide by it. And neither, obviously, is China. Now, uh, let's take a look at this here. So, uh, India has been asked by sanctions hit Russia, like it's saying here, for paths for key sectors. So, uh, Moscow has sent to India a list of more than 500 products for potential delivery, including paths for cars, paths for aircraft, and paths for trains. Four sources familiar with the matter said, as sanctions squeeze Russia's ability to keep vital industries running. It's a big list, more than 500 products. So Russia needs spare parts and various things, and it wants India to supply these things. I think it's fantastic for India. See, right now there is this major, this massive trade imbalance that India is is, uh, experiencing with Russia. Because we have suddenly ramped up the, the amount of oil we are importing from Russia. Because of that, we are paying a huge amount of money to Russia, obviously, right? And Russia is, has thus far not been purchasing the similar amount of goods or whatever from India. So there is a trade imbalance right now. Now Russia has asked for all these things. So we will start sending those material supplies, etc. to Russia. And that will kind of offset the trade imbalance, hopefully, to some extent, that we currently are experiencing with Russia. It's good. It's healthy. And it's good for India's industry and good for India's exports. So this is an interesting development that the Russians are asking India to send all these things, you know, more than 500 products for potential delivery, including paths for cars and aircraft and and trains and other things as well. Good for India's industry, good for India's manufacturing, good for India's exports, overall good for India's economy. We like it. Now, um, there is this interesting and slightly hilarious piece of news. uh, The Pakistanis apparently approached Russia recently. Uh, They they said that we want to purchase Russian oil and they asked for a big discount. 30 to 40 percent discount, the kind of discount the Russians are offering to India and China. And the Russians refused. <laughs> so what I, I wonder what the Pakistanis were thinking. Are they in a position to buy the enormous amounts of oil that India and China are buying from Russia? They are not in a position to do that. And obviously they don't have that sort of strategic relationship and trust with Russia, the way the kind of trust that India has. Even China doesn't have the kind of trust that India has with Russia. And forget about Pakistan. So uh, the Pakistanis tried to play this this little gambit, this gamble, and it did not work. The Russians have refused to uh, to give Pakistan this big discount on oil. They will certainly be willing to sell oil to Pakistan, but not at any kind of discount. They must the Pakistanis need to pay full price. Yeah. So yeah, that that's that's the situation. Now um, here is another interesting piece of news. It is by BBC News. It says that U.S. President Biden, so this is from yesterday. It says that U.S. President Biden is prepared to meet Putin and, and enter into negotiations, talks, diplomacy, etc. to end Russia's war in Ukraine. Russia's war in Ukraine, right? So that's the news that came out yesterday. And then this is a Reuters uh, tweet. President Vladimir Putin is open to talks on a possible settlement on the conflict in Ukraine and believes in a diplomatic solution, the Kremlin said. After Joe Biden suggested, he was prepared to speak to the Russian leader. So so that's what's happening. Let's see how how far this goes. I mean, uh, typically in diplomacy, the one who asks for negotiations is the one who is on the the weaker end of the bargain, who is on the weaker side. Uh, Right now, we know what could be coming up 
with your winter fast approaching so the americans are are making these noises that we would like to that we are prepared to meet our president is prepared to meet mr putin i wonder what they will discuss because mr biden doesn't seem to know what he's doing but here here we are so the russians have also responded they're saying that yeah we are we are open to this but so let's see where it goes so that's the uh, that's the messaging that's that's doing the rounds right now between the americans and the russians yes uh <clears throat> so so yeah that that's what it was and the, here is uh, another piece of news so we have we were we have been talking about the energy crisis that the europeans are experiencing here is what happened to cern and the large hadron collider the large hadron collider is uh, cern's major instrument yes major uh, yeah the the major instrument it consumes uh, as much if you look at cern cern is a nuclear uh, laboratory it is uh, on the border of switzerland and france in western switzerland and it's run by a consortium of european nations it consumes a huge amount of electricity yes it's a particle physics and nuclear physics laboratory the lhc is the largest instrument there which itself is a bunch of uh, different instruments it consumes as much electricity the the, the cern itself consumes as much electricity as a city of about 2 and 1/2 lakh people 250000 people that's how much electricity cern consumes per year so now because of the electricity energy crisis cern was shut down apparently at the end of november itself 26th of november and uh, next year also it will run in a way that it consumes less electricity so we are seeing the effects of of this this issue yeah of the energy crisis in in a variety of ways so cern the lhc was shut down i think in november 26 or 28 i two three weeks before it was originally planned and uh, the cern has pledged to decrease energy consumption this year and next year as well so we are seeing this problem over here now yeah so we are seeing all these issues happening in russia in europe all over the world there is there are talks there are there is this interesting messaging that maybe the americans are willing to negotiate the russians are saying sure why not we will also negotiate let's see where it goes so that is the situation right now so i have been discussing this the past few weeks yeah we spoke about uh, the russian withdrawal from kharkiv in october the russian withdrawal from kherson uh, just a couple of weeks ago and i said there are a, mul- a number of possibilities as to why this happened first of all russia maybe is actually doing very poorly that's possibility number one number one russia is actually doing poorly and losing to the nato ukraine forces and that's why they withdrew from a territory they had already annexed that is possibility number one possibility number two is that the russians are were laying a big trap for the nato forces and once the nato forces would would enter kherson city they would be annihilated that also hasn't happened possibility number three i said was that was that maybe this was the prelude to a negotiated ceasefire well we have seen no sign of a negotiated ceasefire the time has come and gone the g20 summit happened nothing has happened so again there is no no sign of that happening and the last possibility i said the fourth possibility is that the russians are simply reorganizing withdrawing and waiting for the rasputitsa season to get over the rasputitsa season is when you have all this muddy terrain in ukraine in russia 
it's uh, between autumn between the end of autumn and the onset of winter that is not a good time for any kind of cross country activity cross country travel even on unpaved roads and all lot of mud everywhere bog that even a tank will get stuck in so the russians maybe are just waiting for the ground to freeze mid december or in the second half of december once winter properly sets in most likely from whatever we are seeing it looks like the russians are waiting for winter to set in for the ground to freeze and most likely they could launch a major winter offensive when that happens yeah so that is the situation right now these four possibilities exist some of them have you could say the door is closed for them i think uh, it is more and more becoming likely that we are about to witness in the next few weeks a major russian winter offensive that's what it looks like to me let's see if that is indeed the case but that is the one possibility that seems to make sense from the perspective of the logic of strategy yeah so that's where we are vis-a-vis -vis the russia ukraine conflict it is something that will that is very important for india because it's going to affect everything uh, i mean the world is an interconnected world it affects all of us it affects india it affects our prices it affects our future and so on so we are witnessing this sort of thing happening india is refusing to adhere to the us imposed uh, price cap the 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 price cap on on russian oil and let's see what happens yeah we could we we could be witnessing the the beginning of a bifurcation of the world or the global so called rules based world order you know so that's where we are visa vis russia and ukraine we will keep an eye on this we'll keep talking about this now what else do we talk about we'll we'll talk let's talk about china zero covid china has this policy they have been implementing this policy called what they, which they call zero covid my goodness what a disaster it has been let's talk about that let's put some stuff on the screen so when it comes to china it's very hard to get real news you know authentic news of what's really happening there because first of all when the west reports about china the west there's a lot of bias which is well it's natural uh, the west obviously is anti china and for good reason actually because the chinese are well hegemonic imperialistic so called peaceful rise and all that and their major competitor so and and so that is one thing and secondly it's very hard to get authentic news reports out of china because there is this great firewall that the chinese communist party the ccp has imposed and it's very hard to get real news that comes out of china it is censored very quickly there is this almost instantaneous censorship that goes on in china on social media and so on and so forth yeah so it's very hard to know what's happening in china and yet it this this what's happening in china now, right now it's it's become so big that the whole world is coming to know about this so this is a bbc uh, no it's a cnn article from a few days ago november 28 four five days ago protests erupt across china in unprecedented ch challenge to xi jinping's zero covid policy so the chinese communist party has uh, imposed this zero covid policy for months on end they have welded people into homes people have been starving you know they, they shut people and shut families into homes and then they were welding they have been welding the doors shut from outside and then people are left to survive in there with whatever food they have sometimes i believe uh, the workers will develop the will will deliver some food from time to time or something we're not sure but people have been starving 
then there was this this terrible fire in the city of Urumqi in 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 West Turkestan, the so-called Xinjiang region of China. There was a, there was a fire in a building, and the people had been welded shut in their houses, and some people died as a result. They they just burned to death because they were shut. They were shut into the in their homes. They had no way of coming out. So that set of that triggered of this whole set of protests and riots in China. There's also there was also this this uh, situation in Hunan. Uh, there's a big fox foxconn pro- factory there. The workers were protesting over the conditions that they were living in and and the other stuff there. Then the the COVID lockdowns in Shanghai triggered off a lot of protests. People have been asking for the CCP to step down and for Xi Jinping to step down, which is incredible. It's unheard of. These uh, protests and riots have, have, have spread to various degrees to the city of Beijing, to Guangzhou, and so on and so forth. There is police everywhere. Police anyway is everywhere. There is more police presence on the streets now. Uh, the army has been called in at places. There have been reports of tanks rolling around in various cities in China. The Chinese people have been protesting with blank sheets of paper, A4-sized blank paper. So we are not allowed to say anything. So we'll, we'll protest with blank sheets of paper. And you can guess what we are trying to say. That sort of thing. Yeah. And then... <clears throat> The Chinese Communist Party's minions are very active on social media, on Twitter and all. So they are claiming that these protests are not really very big big deal. These are random and sporadic and scattered protests. Just a few people here and there. Very fringe thing. Most of the people are very happy with the Chinese Communist Party. That's the kind of narrative you are seeing in parallel on social media. Yeah. So that's what we are seeing. Yeah. So there has been this issue there. Uh, this is a, a map of... Uh, Look of the various locations where these protests were happening. You can see Urumqi, Korla in in the Xinjiang, Hotan, Lhasa. Also, that's very surprising. Chongqing, Guangzhou, Lanzhou, Xi'an, Wuhan, Shanghai, Nanjing, Zhengzhou. Uh, this city here, I don't know how to say it, and and Beijing itself. Yes. So this was from November twenty seven. Uh, this individual called David Moser says, I've lived in China for 30 years. I've never seen such a brazenly open and sustained expression of rage against the PRC government. WeChat is exploding with protest videos and furious vitriol and civil disobedience is becoming rampant. This is a serious test of Chinese Communist Party governance. And uh, <clears throat> once again, another report. BBC this time, shocking protests are a huge challenge for China's leaders. In Wuhan, the anti-lockdown protesters are tearing down barricades and, st- and shouting. It started in Wuhan and it ends in Wuhan. The protests are spreading like wildfire. People are angry and have had enough. Either the government eases the COVID res- uh, restrictions or there's going to be hard repression. Uh, this is another report. Open displays of anger are rare in China. Having protests over the same issue break out in multiple cities is almost unheard of. A lot of people are reaching their breaking point over zero COVID. And over here, this person says Xinjiang has been in lockdown for three months. That's incredible. Three months. Uh, Someone is saying, imagine living in lockdown China, sealed in your tiny apartment, watching the World Cup. And then you realize not a single person in Qatar is wearing a mask. Once again, China has been left behind in history, trapped in the past. Zero COVID has done more than anything to destroy the concept of rule of law in China. Every neighborhood now enforces random, chaotic, totalitarian restrictions. Whoever is the person in charge decides what should be done. The very idea of the rule of law has disappeared from the population. Uh, 
China's zero COVID policy will go down in history as one of the greatest mistakes of the 21st century. It's obviously stupid and evil. It makes people speculate about the real motivation behind it. China has been destroyed by zero COVID. Many Chinese friends who talk to me about their despair and misery and the horror stories coming out of China. Zero COVID is destroying many Chinese lives. Not safe. China is not safe. Random lockdown chaos. Organ harvesting and so on and so forth. Yeah. And over here, the US mission in China is calling on its citizens in the country to keep a 14-day supply of medications, bottled water and food for yourself and any members of your household. So this is the kind of stuff that's this is the, this is the kind of activity that's going on in china that's the kind of news that is emerging out of china right so there it seems that the whole nation is in turmoil spontaneous protests happening everywhere the question is are these protests spont- spontaneous truly or are they engineered somehow are they engineered if they are engineered where are they engineered from the obvious suspicion see look we I'm sure you all know, I am no great fan of China. You know that. China is India's number one threat, essentially. Yeah, But we also have to ask ourselves what's really happening there. Are these protests really spontaneous or are they engineered from within or without? If it is being engineered from outside, the obvious needle of suspicion will go to the United States. The United States is a past master at engineering color revolutions all around the world. So is this another color revolution attempt like is this hong kong 2.0 like what the americans tried in hong kong and then the question arises what will the chinese communist party do about this will they crush it like the what they did in 1989 tiananmen square are we about to witness tiananmen 2.0 right these are some some of the questions we have to think about i mean all all the I mean, government needs to keep an eye on this very very closely and then the question also arises why has China adopted this incredibly, well, this in, incredibly drastic zero COVID policy? Why? We know what's happening. The, this zero COVID policy is destroying the Chinese economy. The GDP most likely has gone into negative growth now. Yeah, we know that manufacturing is crawling to a halt in China. It's a huge hit to the economy. We know. Look, one of the reasons why zero COVID has been implemented possibly is because the Chinese vaccine Sinovac isn't effective. Its efficacy is worse than the Pfizer vaccine and Moderna vaccine. Yeah. Those vaccines are terrible. It's now, it's now proven. All the, all the data is out now that the Moderna vaccine and the, and the Pfizer vaccines aren't great at all. Sinovac is worse than that. So is that the reason? Is, is, is it true that COVID is still rampant? It's still killing people? We don't know because no data comes out of China. So one of the possibilities for this incredibly drastic and stringent zero COVID policy, one possibility is that Sinovac is not working and that's why they have been forced to do this. But then it's destroying the economy, right? It's terrible for China. What is the? What are the other possibilities? Number two one could think of is that maybe there's a new strain of the virus that we don't know about, but it's, it's, it's emerged in China. Yeah? So maybe that's a possibility, but it's a highly unlikely possibility because it's almost impossible for to contain such a new strain of virus within China. It's almost impossible for such a strain not to leak out of China and to and to make its way across the world. The other possibility, which is even more unlikely, is that there's a whole new virus altogether, yeah, which has emerged in China. That's even more unlikely and and slightly ridiculous. Yeah, it's impossible to keep secret. 
now another possibility is that maybe there is a secret widespread internal purge happening within the chinese communist party and the zero covid policy is is a is a means of keeping everything you know they uh, you know everything uh, uh, covered up maybe it's a big cover up that the chinese communist party is doing maybe there's a big purge happening within the, within the ccp internal purge and the zero covid uh, policy across china is is a means of keeping this new news from leaking out and, and keeping the people from knowing what's happening that is a possibility and maybe another possibility is that there is not a secret internal purge but a, se- a secret political uprising within the chinese communist party that is currently being crushed under the garb of zero covid maybe you know a few weeks ago we spoke about where xi jinping had disappeared some people were saying that there's a coup against him and i said that it is not a coup it is most likely that xi jinping is consolidating his power ahead of the very major uh, national event yeah and most likely that that is what really happened so is this another such such thing that's happening is there another maybe some kind of political coup happening which is being done top down yeah is xi jinping consolidating uh, consolidating power further within china within the chinese communist party and doing this at the expense of the nation and the economy that's a possibility but once again that seems kind of unlikely but we have to keep all the possibilities in mind what is the next possibility i can think of one more possibility even that this sounds outlandish are the chinese trying to decouple their economy from the us and from the west are they trying to move from an export and manufacture from an export driven economy to an economy that is driven by internal consumption an internal consumption based economy in which they will use africa and the so called global south for resources and then eventually they will start trading only with the global south a complete decoupling from the us and in the western economy that is extremely outlandish but one should also keep that in mind you know the de-dollarization that some people talk about so this could be in line with what's what something that we are already seeing the bifurcation of the world order which is this emerging bifurcation of the world order move away from the us dollar you know move towards a brics plus plus kind of world so then you will have two parallel systems in the world the us whims based world order rules based world order and the brics system two parallel economies two parallel systems and then we will see who comes out on top a new cold war like in the 20th century is that what the, the chinese are trying to do we don't know these are the various possibilities i can think of what is really happening i don't know and i'm not going to make predictions but i think some one of these possibilities could be closer to the truth than than the others so i think that there could be some kind of <clears throat> move towards a brics plus kind of world but i i i find it rather uh, unlikely that the chinese would deliberately sabotage their own economy to do such a thing so it's not quite sure right now what's happening what is 100% certain is that the chinese economy is stagnating yes or uh, the chinese birth rates have fallen drastically in the past 2 3 years the total fertility rate is close to 1 than 2 yeah so uh there's a lot of turmoil happening in china and these are not good things for china uh 
So the economy is stagnating. The GDP is contracting. It could even be in negative growth now, which means it could be contracting. Manufacturing has taken a huge hit. The economy has taken a huge rate hit. Society is is kind of under lockdown for a long for the longest time. People are getting really frustrated. The frustration is boiling over. These are turbulent times for China. Is it happening because of the chi- policies of the Chinese Communist Party and Xi Jinping, or is it because of external inter- interference in China? We still have no clarity about these things. But it's very important from India's perspective as well, because if the situation kind of threatens to go out of control in China, you could see some some, you know, things that uh, you don't want to see. For instance, the Chinese leadership, if it gets desperate, they might try to you know provoke a war with a neighboring country. And use that as the pretext to 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 uh, tell the people of China that we are your legitimate rulers and to re-establish their legitimacy in the eye of the eyes of the population. These things I've spoken about before. So it is extremely important for India to keep a very close watch on happen, what's happening right next door in China, in Chinese occupied Tibet, and further beyond, because all of that is going to affect us. Yeah. So that is the situation in China. Still no clarity over what's happening, why the Chinese are doing this when the whole world has essentially moved on from COVID, why they are adopting this extremely drastic, stringent, draconian zero COVID policy, which is really, I mean, obviously, you know, causing so much, so, so much, uh, so much pain in China. So we still don't have the answers, but we're going to keep on uh, we're going to keep an eye, a very close eye on what's happening in China. Right. Uh, what else shall we talk about? Maybe one or two more topics. An interesting topic that came up, uh, interesting piece of news that came up recently is this. So India has uh, India has issued what we call a NOTAM, Notice to Airmen. What is this NOTAM? Let me put that on the screen. Here is the news report. India issues NOTAM for very long-range ballistic missile test. So uh, this is for an experimental flight vehicle. And the the no-go zone, no-fly zone or no-go zone is 5,400 kilometers in length. Uh, Let's put a better image of that on the screen. Here we are. Take a look at this, the no-fly zone. No-go zone, no-fly zone. Indian missile test. It extends beyond the latitudes at which Australia exists. It extends almost to the southern coast of Africa, the latitudes of of South Africa, and obviously Madagascar. This is an extremely extensive and long no-fly zone. Its max length is 5,400 kilometers. So clearly this is not some uh, short-range missile. It's clearly not a cruise missile. Cruise missiles don't have such ranges, 5,400 Unless, I mean... There are certain cruise missiles in existence that uh, rely on nuclear ramjet propulsion. The Russians, I believe, have such a missile. In that case, uh, a cruise missile missile has essentially unlimited range. But uh, we're not talking about that right now. So this most likely uh, is an ICBM test, Intercontinental Range Ballistic Missile. So which ICBM could this be? So this is, uh, the launch window is between 15 and 16 December 2022, which is about less than two weeks from now. So if you uh, if you look at the uh, ranges of the various Indian ballistic missiles, it falls within the range of the Agni-5 missile. Uh, 
this is the officially stated range of the Agni-5 missile. Yeah. And uh, if you look at the Agni missiles, uh, the Agni-5 missile range has a an operation uh, has a stated range of between 5,500 to 8,000 kilometers. We don't know what the actual range is. This is the this is what it is believed to be, or what has been put out in the public domain. So that uh, so the, this uh, this missile test could be that of an Agni-5 missile. The Agni-6 is under development. It is supposed to have a range between 11 and 12,000 kilometers away, which is way, way, way beyond the range of this missile. Yeah. But you could also test the Agni-6 missile with a shorter, reduced range just for the purpose of testing. So uh, this could possibly be an Agni-5 test. It could possibly be an Agni-6 test with reduced range just for test purposes. It could even be a K-5 SLBM test. The K-5 is a submarine-launched ballistic missile with uh, a range of between five and 6,000 kilometers. So it could be that as well. Yeah. So India is testing most likely some kind of long-range ballistic missile, uh, most likely an intercontinental ballistic missile, either the Agni-5 or the Agni-6 or the K-5 submarine-launched ballistic missile. This is coming up uh, in mid-December, in less than two weeks from now. And to nobody's surprise, it is thus far the, the news is speculative, but it appears like the Yuan Wang-5, China's spy ship, satellite and missile tracking ship, might be heading back to the Indian Ocean region, right? So uh, this is news that came out yesterday. It is still not confirmed, but it looks like it's heading towards the Indian Ocean direction, this Chinese spy ship, which means that the Chinese are try will do their best. I mean, they would be stupid not to. You know, they will do their best to try and keep an eye on what the Indians are up to and what this missile's flight characteristics are like so that they will get an idea of what India is testing and what the threat to them is from this missile test and what this missile means for them in the long run. So that's where we are. Interesting piece of news that that has come out. And this is something that, yeah, we should keep an eye on. Interesting stuff. All right. What else shall we talk about? We will talk about one more thing, which obviously, again, deals with India's national security from a very different angle. Twitter. Now, Twitter is social media. And you would say, why? What does social media have to do with uh, national security? Well, these days, everything affects national security. So this was on November 29th that Elon Musk, the owner of Twitter, tweeted. He said that the Twitter files on free speech suppression soon to be published on Twitter itself. The public deserves to know what really happened. That's what he said on November 29th. Yesterday, not today, today, today early morning, he said, here we go. And he linked to, uh, he, he linked to, to this by somebody called Matt Taibbi. Let's see what he has to say. Okay, let me pause that. I don't need that. Oh, yeah. Okay. So this is a big, long Twitter thread by Matt Taibbi. And it is called The Twitter Files. So what is this all about? So in it's a bunch of revelations and a bunch of emails that have come out of Twitter. You know, Twitter's internal communications and external communications with various stakeholders and government agencies and so on and so forth. Yeah. So what are the things that have come out of this? For the first, there are a number of revelations in this Twitter thread. And I would encourage you all to take a look at it. You can just go to Elon Musk's Twitter account and you will find this Twitter thread uh, which he has posted over there. So 
the first thing you have to understand which has come out of all this is something we all knew very well all the time that twitter is unbalanced it is overwhelmingly unbalanced in favor of the democrats this is political bias political leanings you know twitter in the us there is this this uh, law i believe that you may not hire somebody or 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 discriminate while hiring on the basis of political views or affiliations and yet it looks like twitter is almost 99% democrat i mean the, if you look at the employees that twitter had before elon musk fired so many of them 99% of them were democrats that is incredible which means they have hired people on the basis they've discriminated while hiring on the basis of political affiliation and political views which is terrible to see so twitter was overwhelmingly balanced of biased in favor of the democrats in in the us and as we know it was overwhelmingly biased in favor of what we call the so called left liberals worldwide and it's not mentioned in this twitter thread but we know that uh, the blue ticks were for sale they were bought if you had the right connections and if you could, if you could afford to pay money you could buy a blue tick in in a variety of ways it, that of course is not mentioned in this tweet i'm just saying it over here it is also uh, yeah moderation the resulting slant in content moderation decisions so the moderation was greatly slanted uh you know depending on on what kind of uh, tweets you were doing you, you could so it was essentially slanted in favor of the left in favor of the democrats and <clears throat> that sort of thing not only in the us but also worldwide and it also becomes clear that twitter was involved in massive election interference electoral interference especially in the 2020 us election presidential election and who was at the heart of all of this in electoral interference it was vijaya gade vijaya gade where is she uh, there is a yeah if you go through all of this you will see her name pop up all the time so vijaya gade was uh, essentially jack dorsey's chaperone she was the legal head of twitter yeah and a lot of the blame is being thrown at vijaya gade now obviously i am no huge fan of fan of vijaya gade she was very much anti india as well despite being an immigrant girl i think she moved to the us as a child when she was about 3 years old yeah but uh, the policies that she she implemented were very much anti india as well right so uh, and yet one gets the sense that uh, despite uh, there's no doubt that vijaya gade does deserve a lot of the blame for what she did extremely high handed extremely biased and all that and yet one gets the feeling that this immigrant girl is being thrown under the bus and jack dorsey is being exonerated so it looks like the entire paper paper trail leads back to vijaya gade but uh, jack dorsey so somehow is not kind of touched or involved in that yeah so that's the kind of uh, sense one gets but obviously vijaya gade it's going to be a bad time for her but she deserves all of it no doubt about it yeah she has been at the heart of all of this the question that i have is what was twitter's role in the interference in india we know that thousands of what you would call pro india accounts were banned arbitrarily in india i am sure you all had certain favorite accounts of people whom you used to follow and many of these people were banned thousands and thousands of indians were banned arbitrarily especially pro india accounts while anti india accounts got a free run on twitter it is also alleged very strongly alleged that 
a majority of the Twitter staff or the entirety allegedly of Twitter staff in India was openly anti-national. It is alleged that way. Yeah. And one gets a sense if you see their content moderation decisions, their policies and all that. Yeah. So the question is, was there election interference, electoral interference in India? Yeah. It's possible there was. There are so many elections that happen in India on a routine basis, state elections, municipal elections, every five years, national elections as well, general elections, and so on. And Twitter and social media overall is a very powerful tool for shaping public opinion. So it is now very clear that Twitter was deeply corrupt. It indulged in rampant electoral interference in the 2020 election. It suppressed this, this entire matter of the Biden secret emails, the contents of Hunter Biden's abandoned laptop. You can read through all of this. I'm not going to go into that. It's very clear that they, they interfered in the, in the electoral, electoral process and in the shaping of the, of the perceptions of the American people during in the run-up to the 2020 uh, US ele- presidential election. So this highlights how powerful a tool Twitter is and social media overall is in electoral interference and in interfering in the internal matters of nations such as India. And there will be many more truths, more explosive explosive truths that will obviously never be relieved, re- revealed. These truths will stay suppressed because certain things are very sensitive and the US government will not allow th- that stuff to be published. Yeah. And Elon Musk has said today that tune, tune in for episode two of the Twitter files tomorrow. So more revelations will come up tomorrow and we will keep an eye on this. But my point is that, you know, social media is extremely powerful. Social media can be an extremely dangerous tool for foreign governments, for foreign actors, is as a means of interfering in the internal matters of India and other countries, and as a tool, as a powerful tool of electoral interference. Very powerful tool. And this is critical for India with the 2024 elections coming up. So uh the Indian government needs to stay on top of this, keep an eye on this, and 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 yeah, this is very important for India. The power of social media is is critical these days in shaping public opinion and in the outcomes of entire national elections and state elections and in the electoral process of nations. So yes, that's what's happening right now, and more Twitter uh, files are gonna be published tomorrow and maybe over the coming days. We will keep an eye on it, and we'll uh, we'll. Try and see if, if any revelations are made about what was happening in Twitter India, vis-a-vis the Twitter policies within India. Because we know what kind of high-handed policies they've had. They have even locked out serving government officials, even MPs out of their Twitter accounts. They even uh, forced, I believe, the Vice President of India to delete a tweet or something and, and took away the blue tick of the Vice President of India arbitrarily, you know, Twitter India, the, the staff at Twitter, Twitter India, and so on. So that's the kind of power that social media holds. And that's why it's important for India to keep, to keep a very close eye on what comes out of the Twitter files. So yeah, that's where we are vis-a-vis the Twitter files. And uh, that brings me to the end of today's episode. Uh, the Indian interest episodes are not two over episodes. We talk about a few topics and then we are done with it. So with that, I am at the end of today's episode. Thank you very much for watching. And I will see you very soon. I will see you in tomorrow's Ask Abhijit live stream. 
until then take care thank you very much for your viewership and i will see you very soon thank you bye